Hear now a word from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might and his arms rule for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thank you, Andrew. And one other announcement I would remind you this afternoon at 2.30 at the Nixon Center, the Masterworks Chorale under the direction of our own Kathy Bazarth and the inspirations will be there as well. There will be a, a concert, it starts at 2.30 and I hope that you will join some of us there. In 1962, my dad bought a baby blue Plymouth Valiant station wagon. Three on the tree, slant six engine, no air conditioning. But it was a station wagon, and that was the greatest thing since sliced bread as far as I was concerned. And we took some wonderful trips in that little station wagon, went to some exotic faraway places, Cherokee, North Carolina, and Daytona Beach, Florida. <laughs> Two of the destinations that I remember. Early in the morning was always our preferred time of departure. There was no luggage carrier, and I honestly don't know how we all got in there. There were three of us, my mother and dad in the front. The three of us were stretched out in the back, and we'd sleep for a while before we started picking at each other and became terribly annoying. But I don't know where the suitcases went with all that. There was just no room. It was packed. And if anything else had come in, something would have to go out. And I think I'm probably what would have come out because I was the oldest and could have handled staying by myself better than the other two. But anyway, those are, were good memories. Childhood memories are not always 100% accurate, but uh, they were good times. Taking a trip, going on a journey. Last week we began a new church here with the first Sunday in Advent. And the image that we have chosen to help us on that season is the image of going on a journey. Packing a suitcase. The question before us is, what will we pack? What will we consider essential? And what will we just leave behind? The first essential, we talked about it last Sunday, is hope. 
And the candle of hope was lit. Hope centered in Jesus Christ, who came as Bethlehem's babe, who comes into our world every day by the power of the Holy Spirit, and who will come again at the close of time to write history's final chapter. Folks who forget to pack hope are not too difficult to spot, and occasionally they show up in our mirrors. The second essential to be included in our suitcase is love. More specifically this day, I want us to think about overwhelming love, and our scriptural reference is the Isaiah passage that was read just a moment ago. In reality, the entire book of Isaiah but beyond that, all of Scripture is a book with stories and examples and testimony to overwhelming love. And in Isaiah, in our past, is a message filled with drama and intrigue and hope and abundant love. It's a bold statement concerning the presence of God in the events of human history. We overlook that so often we don't see it. And it addresses what over the centuries has remained one of the most Amazing passages, I think, in all of Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament, a reference to Jewish and later Christian theology. Paul Hansen had this to say about it. He said, when one realizes this speech was addressed to a people who had experienced the loss of nearly all those structures and institutions that gave identity to them as a community, it assumes a poignancy especially for folks who are going through their own crisis, a personal crisis or a community crisis, having to let go of things that meant so much. Hansen then asked this question, in the face of the loss of temple and homeland and nation, can a people confess the basic message that we often speak in that little table prayer that many of us learned as children, God is great and God is good. When we lose those things that have propped us up, that have been so much a part of our life and they get away from us, can we still make that prayerful claim that our God is with us? The passage begins with words that have been immortalized in song and in sermon and in Sunday school lesson and in books across the decades, across the centuries. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her sentence has been served, that her penalty has been paid. And then the passage continues with some beautiful words that bring to mind, or my mind anyway, a couple of things. An amazing character, John the Baptist is the first thing I think about. Prepare the way of the Lord. One of those characters who walks through Advent with us and reminds us that we need to prepare. We need to be ready. And then, number two, I think about Handel's Messiah, that soul-stirring section, or it stirs my soul, and the glory, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So much of our glorious music comes right out of the pages of Scripture. Verses 6 through 10 speak to the permanency, to the strength of our amazing God who has always been and always will be. In a very picturesque kind of way then, overwhelming love is addressed. That end of the passage, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. That ancient image of the shepherd is so distant to our 
culture now in so many ways. But there are so many things about it that are timeless. Think about it. Feeding and gathering and carrying and gently leading. All of those things come to us out of this passage, out of this picture. And with all of the examples and descriptions of overwhelming love in the scripture, and there are so many, this image of the shepherd stands out for me. And maybe that's because I can acknowledge my own need for a shepherd when I fail and when I fall. And all those times, so many times when I feel so inadequate. But what do we do? What if our suitcases are already full? For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's about the most overwhelming example of overwhelming love that we can find, isn't it? Aren't we called to love others lavishly as God has loved us without stopping to count the calls or to decide if that's somebody who's worthy of our love or not? If we are to journey successfully, not only through these days of Advent, but through all these days of our life, we need to check and be sure that that kind of overwhelming love is packed in the suitcases that we carry. But what if our suitcases are already full? Like that little station wagon I remember from my childhood days. Nothing else could have been put in there, I don't believe. Sometimes our suitcases are so jam-packed that there's not room for anything else unless we start to take some stuff out. Maybe some stuff that doesn't need to be there anyway. Some stuff that's incompatible with overwhelming love. And one of the first things that comes to my mind is fear. There's not room in the suitcase for love and for fear. One of my favorite teachers told this story and, and someone came to me after the 8.30 service and said they also grew up in a situation like this. It, it seemed like old home week to them. But anyway, Craddock says that growing up, he said, I lived near a railroad track and as a boy, I remember a number of mornings getting up, getting awake, getting dressed, going down for breakfast, going to the kitchen, and there'd be a strange, ugly-looking, poorly-dressed man sitting at the kitchen table, just eating, just eating away, eating away. I was scared of him. And when he left, I would say, Mom, who was that? She'd say, well, his name was Henry, and he said he was hungry. <laughs> well, where'd he come from? He came down the railroad tracks. People called them hobos, he said. They walked along the tracks, and they would steal or do whatever they needed to do just to stay alive. They'd stop by our house looking for something to eat. And there, sitting in the kitchen and eating what we had to eat. Eating, eating, just like he'd never have another meal. And I'd say, Mama, weren't you scared? She said, he's hungry. I said, but Mama, I was scared of him. Well, she said, he was hungry. If we take the fear out of the suitcase, sometimes there's more room for the overwhelming love. Most suitcases, there's not room for overwhelming love and envy. I found this definition of envy and maybe it fits some of us, maybe not. Envy has been defined as the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as we are. That's a pretty good definition, isn't it? Envy, jealousy, the green-eyed monster has a way of 
taking over everything in the suitcase and crowding other stuff out. Love only wants what is best for others. Envy only wants us to have more than what others have. For many, many folks, if envy was removed from the suitcase, there would be room for the proverbial kitchen sink. In most suitcases, there's not room for overwhelming love and greed. Jesus told lots of stories about greed, about folks whose suitcases were so packed with greed that they had to have two or three folks sit on that suitcase just to close the latch. You may remember the old kind of suitcases and how sometimes you'd get your kids or somebody to sit on it so you could close the latch. It was so tight and there was so much stuff in there. But these stories about greed, suitcases full of greed, and uh, Jesus told these stories, and many of these stories have found a home in Luke's gospel, and in chapter 18 in particular, there's a story there. And let me tell you that quickly. This is Eugene Peterson's who did the message translation. This is the way he tells the story. He said, one day one of the local officials asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments, don't you? You know all those things. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man, he said, I've kept them for as long as I can remember. And when Jesus heard that, he said, then there's only one other thing you need to do. You need to sell everything you own and give it away to the poor and you'll have riches in heaven. <laughs> then come follow me. This was the last thing that this official wanted to hear. Apparently he was very wealthy, would have been considered rich by most folks in his day. He was holding on tight to a whole lot of things that he wasn't willing to turn loose. And I bet his suitcases were the biggest and the best available. But still, wasn't room for all that stuff. Their weight was interfering with him moving toward real life, abundant life, eternal life with Jesus the Christ. And in most suitcases, there's not room for overwhelming love and hatred. And that should go without saying, shouldn't it? Let's say it anyway. A body might as well try to tote fire and ice in the same bucket as to carry love and hatred in the same suitcase. It just won't work. The suitcase has yet to be made that would be tough enough to stand the conflict that would be caused with those two things traveling together. Love is surely the most powerful force in the universe. We believe that, don't we? But hatred is not a 20-pound weakling. And the conflict and the struggle is real. And hate and damage, hate can destroy and can damage. And it usually saves its greatest destruction, not for the hatee, so to speak, but for the hater. And hate can so contaminate the vessel, so contaminate the suitcase, that there's really no option but to clear it out and to start over and to begin anew. And that process has a name. The name is conversion. There's not room in the suitcase for love and fear, but courage to do the right thing and love while well, they, they travel together right nicely. There's no room in the suitcase for love and envy, but love and rejoicing in the good fortune of others, those are great traveling companions. They go together like a horse in a carriage. And there's not room in the suitcase for love and greed, 
But love of God and love of neighbor, well, they fit together perfectly. Not love and hatred, but love of neighbor, love of God. And they end up looking a lot alike, don't they? And aren't we called to love in both of those ways? Overwhelming love. If the security folks were to open the latch on our suitcases or our family suitcase or our church family suitcase, would they find any overwhelming love packed away there? Heard about a woman whose suitcase was so full of overwhelming love that it was just kind of oozing out the side. It wasn't sealed good maybe, but just couldn't hold all that overwhelming love. It happened in a place called Bethany. Jesus was a guest in the house of Simon the leper. And while he was eating a dinner, a woman came up and she was carrying a very expensive bottle of perfume, just some very extravagant, expensive stuff. And she opened the bottle and she began to pour it on him. And some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's criminal. That's a waste This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. That's more than a year's wages that have been poured out on him. And they swelled up in anger and they were nearly busting with indignation over her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you giving her such a hard time? She's done something wonderful that will be told about her for all time. Wherever the story is told, she'll be remembered. He said, she's done something wonderful. You have the poor with you always. And you can. You should care for them. But whenever you feel like it, but not so with me, he said. She did what she could with what she had, where she was. She pre-anointed my body for burial. And you can be sure that wherever this story is told in the world throughout all time, that will be remembered about her. Crucifixion was a dirty, gruesome, smelly kind of process, human perspiration, and human waste accounted for, for much of the odor. As Jesus hung there on our behalf, on behalf of the world that God loves so much, I'm sure that his head must have drooped. And I wonder if the last thing he smelled was that perfume, the scent of that wasted perfume overwhelming love. Amen.